0: Uh, good morning, from a very cold rigour. We're going to continue Matthew 4. Remember what last time we did the record of the temptations of the Lord, and so we're going to pick up from Matthew 4, verse 11, to the end of the chapter. And we we'll just start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we are again here in this place to remember and think about your dear Son and to try to understand Him. And we pray that both you, and you, Lord Jesus, will open our eyes, that we might come closer to you, Lord Jesus, the one whom we love, the light of our world. And in the great distance that we stand in time and culture and understanding and spirituality from where you were then, as you lived in this world, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will come into our lives and that you will show us so that, as it were, we have the comforter with us. and that it will be almost as if you never left us, but that we see you clearly. And we believe that you work in this way through the medium of the Gospels and of, of God's Word. And we pray then for eyes to be opened, and that really we might meet with you and abide with you after we finish this study. Please hear our prayer. For your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 4, we got up to the end of the temptations last time, and the uh, point that I made in looking at the record of the temptations was that the Lord Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And I made the point that really the, the devil there, the, the Satan, the great adversary, was ultimately the, the mind of, of the flesh, which the Lord Jesus had just as we do. And the idea that what happened to him there in the wilderness, in essence, happens to us in our wilderness journey in this life—that uh, that is is made. That point is made by a number of allusions uh, in the later New Testament to the record of the Lord's temptations, where language relevant to the Lord's temptation is picked up and used about us. Now, just coming to the end of that record in Matthew 4, uh, verse 11, Then the devil leads him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, those very same words are used in Hebrews 1.14, about how the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto us, who shall be heirs of salvation. And the whole theme there in Hebrews 1 and 2 was that the Lord Jesus was of our nature, not an angel, as the JWs and others think, uh, as the proto-Gnostics thought, but that he, in essence, had the same nature as us, and therefore, what is true of him is true of us. And we can look to him as the real hero and, and living example. And so, in the same way as angels came and ministered unto him, you can put a note there by chapter 4, verse 11, scribble it in your margin, Hebrews one fourteen. This language is applied consciously, I believe, to us. So, in that sense, we are not alone. Because we have the Lord Jesus there in heaven as our personal uh, example and cheering us on and as our personal representative before the throne of the Father in heaven. It's a, a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a bridge between he as he was there in the first century, getting tempted and angels coming and ministering unto him. It's a bridge from there right over the centuries to our time today. So verse 12 Now, when Jesus heard that John was put into prison, he departed into Galilee. It's as if he took the end of John's public ministry as a kind of cue uh, for him to do something, in this case, to go to Galilee and to start a a campaign of preaching there. And in verse 17, uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. So then, from that time, when this happened... Now, how did the Lord Jesus know this? Did God sort of give him a blueprint for his ministry? Did God say, look, uh, when John's put in the prison, when his public ministry finishes, then you are to go and and do this, that, or the other? No, I don't think so. I think that the idea was that he was himself to work this out. And I think that, that it's rather like when we read that Jesus perceived the thoughts of human hearts. Yes, it could have been a direct, you know, a zap of knowledge from the Father. But it seems to me that God delegated his purpose to his son, and the Lord Jesus uh, had certain game plans. And as we'll see later in Matthew, it seems to me that he sometimes changed uh, his, his plans uh, in accordance with Israel's response, or lack thereof. so we're told in verse 12 that he departed into Galilee and departed there definitely translates a greek word that that without question means to withdraw to withdraw himself into Galilee now i think it, i i it, i think that if you look at the gospel records and try to actually put them together chronologically I would say that you've only got uh, accounts of incidents that happened uh, in the most 50 days, 50 individual days in the Lord's ministry, and probably far less. There is one day which is recorded in Matthew chapters 12 and 13, with of course uh, contributions for, from the other the other Gospels, uh, which takes up a, a huge amount of uh, a huge amount of material. If you put it all together, you'll see that. All those things happened: healings and miracles, etc. Teaching on one day. Now, if the Lord had kept up that tempo, that intensity of activity, I, I just don't think it was possible for anyone with human nature to live like that every single day. You could make the point, you could make the case that the Lord uh, actually focused upon teaching the twelve and occasionally came out to the crowds and did uh, teachings. Uh, miracles uh, and so forth that 's a possible view and it 's one that, as I read the Gospels more and more, I, I think I come to, uh, to to that view but we 'll we'll maybe talk about that as we go on a bit later in in Matthew. I just raise it now so you can start to think about it when we, when we come to it later. so verse thirteen and leaving nazareth, and again you have to look at another time at the Greek there definitely means forsaking, forsaking Nazareth. I think uh, it's as if there was a lack of response there, and so he forsook it. And he went to live somewhere else. Verse 13, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. And again, uh, this is a a poor translation. It really does mean to reside permanently, not just to hang hang out there for a couple of days. It means that he made his base in Capernaum And not in Nazareth. He lived there. It became his dwelling place. And why does he do that? Why does he make this shift? Well, I've said that maybe because of the lack of response in his hometown, prophet not without honour in his own country and so forth. Um, But the reason is actually given in verse 14. He shifted his dwelling place from Nazareth to Capernaum, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. So then, he consciously tries to fulfill Bible prophecy. He was the Word made flesh, in the same way as that Word should become flesh in us. Now, that uh, Word becoming flesh was not, it seems to me, uh, an automatic uh, kind of uh, thing that just automatically happened. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. No, it it seems to me that he purposefully tried to do this. One of the finest books... uh, about the Gospels is by Harry Whittaker, in my opinion. Uh, Harry Whittaker's book, Studies on the Gospels, and I don't know how many times he makes the point that the Lord Jesus did not go around purposefully trying to fulfill Bible prophecy. And it's too bad that Harry is now asleep in Christ because I would love to ask Harry where on earth he got that idea from. <laughs> because as I read it, it's quite the other way round. So many times you read this that the Lord did this in order f- to fulfill that prophecy. So. The word in a sense has to become flesh in us as it was in the Lord. This word becoming flesh was not something unique to the Lord, contrary to what Trinitarians would like to think in their interpretation of John 1. The word is to become flesh in us and that involves a conscious, a conscious action and decision from us. So he went there, he shifted to Capernaum to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet had said, that, verse 15, the land of Zebulun, Nephtali, by the way of the sea, and I think the sea there is not the Mediterranean, the sea there must surely be the Sea of Galilee, Uh, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people which sat in darkness saw great light. And so to fulfill that, the Lord goes and lives in, uh, in Capernaum and makes that his permanent dwelling place. Now, how does this apply to us? In what sense, then, should we be trying to consciously fulfill, to consciously fulfill prophecy? The 19th century Christadelphians in the United Kingdom understood Bible prophecy to require that the Jews would return to Israel and that the barren land of Israel would become uh, fruitful and fertile again. So what did they do? They didn't say, oh yeah, well that's what's going to happen. Uh, They raised money to support Jews going back to the land, and to support various irrigation schemes and so on that were being done in the land of Israel. Because that's what they believed was required by Bible prophecy. Now, whether they understood prophecy right or not is not what I want to talk about. I'm just saying that that's an example in our sort of generational not quite my generation, but um, in our times, let's say, more recent times uh, in the modern world, of uh, believers consciously trying to fulfill Bible prophecy. Now, the inevitable verse I suppose I'm going to uh, bring to your attention is when the Lord says, the gospel of the kingdom must go into all the world, and then, and then shall the end come. Now, does that mean we say, yeah, well, the gospel's going to go into all the world, and then shall the end come? Amen thus shall it be, or do we get motivated by that verse to take the gospel into all the world, so that the end might come? That verse is pretty clear. Uh, A a more uh, slightly more reading in between the lines case can be made, but nevertheless, I submit, a legitimate case can be made for there needing to be a, a repentance in Israel, at least amongst a minority of Jewish people before the Lord comes. Now, what are we doing about that? Are I going to leave it to someone else? Just hope it happens? If you and I, in whatever way we can, get involved in trying to bring that about, then we we shall, in, in Peter's words, hasten the coming of the day of God. So there's not, I don't think, a calendar date for the Lord's return. But it is to some degree open. So then, the Lord consciously tried to fulfill this prophecy. Now, verse 15. By the way of the sea. This uh, way was going to have light shed upon it. And straight away, we think about John the Baptist's teaching, which the Lord was picking up and, and taking further, that the way to Zion must be prepared by Israel accepting Messiah. And that's what John was trying to do, and that's what the Lord Jesus was trying to do. Now, let's just have a a look then at where he's quoting from. He's quoting from Isaiah 9, verse 9, which says "The people which walked in darkness saw a great light. But here it is changed. And it's not quoting from a different uh, text, a different original uh, manuscript. It's changed. From Isaiah 9 verse 9, the people who walked in darkness saw this great light. This uh, says, the people who sat in darkness. It's a change. Why the change? This is Matthew, under inspiration, writing this Gospel. Well, if you go um, later on in, uh, in Matthew, you'll see that... In fact, it was Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9, who was sitting, who was sitting, uh, at the receipt of custom. And Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up and follows him. So Matthew's gospel, although it's inspired, is the gospel according to Matthew. This is Matthew's personal account of the gospel message. It's a transcript of how he used to preach the gospel. So, Matthew 9 verse 9, you can scribble that in the margin there by 16, you know, I don't want to be a school teacher, but, you know, underline, very neatly, uh, the word sat, the people who sat, and uh, scribble down Isaiah 9 verse 9, and Matthew 9 verse 9. 9, 9, twice. Isaiah 9 verse 9, Matthew 9 verse 9. He saw this as personally relevant to himself, and so he just tweaks the, uh, tweaks the translation there a little bit. And this is a quite legitimate way for you know, Jewish people uh, doing Midrash on the Old Testament. The point is that our presentation of the Gospel needs to include something personal, that this is what it means for me. This is how it struck me, that I was sitting on the receipt of custom, I was sitting in darkness, and a great light came to even to me. Now, this is reflected in the way that we present the Gospel, not as a bold statement of fact, but there's got to be something of you personally in that message. You could say, but the message has got to be about Jesus. Yes, the message is about Jesus, but it is good news that I am telling you, and that inevitably involves an element of personal uh, testimony, as is said. Not to the point that the personal testimony pushes out Jesus so that the, quote, gospel uh, just becomes uh, a story about my life. No, it's just the story of the life of Jesus, ultimately, uh, as we see in the Gospel of Matthew. But, exemplified the word made flesh in me, in you. And it is that, I think, which has... Uh, compulsion. It's that which attracts people. It's that which grabs people. That this fella, Duncan, or whoever you are, uh, Vladimir, uh, John, Sergei, Jose, who, whoever you are, that the Gospel grabbed you, and you're now telling it to the other guy next to you. And he sees, or she sees, how it affected you. Now, again, looking at the context there, the people who walked in darkness, going back to Isaiah um chapter 9, what is this darkness that he's talking about? The people who sat in this darkness saw the great light, and the, uh, the light is clearly that of the Lord Jesus. Well, <clears throat> if you get back to uh, Isaiah 9, sorry, it's Isaiah 9 verse 2, I told you to write the wrong verse in your Bible, didn't I? I told you to um, write Isaiah 9 verse 9, it's Isaiah 9 verse 2, so there you are, you have to get your typex out, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 2, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Write um, have been your margin, Duncan, sorry. Uh, Isaiah 9, verse 2, people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. Okay, so then the, uh, the light is Jesus, and what's the darkness? Well, have a look at uh, verse 1. The darkness will not be like it was at the first. Then going back to chapter 8... Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because they are them for whom there is no dawn. And I think the AV is wrong there, because there is no light in them, Uh, following quite a few other translations, it says uh, they don't speak according to, to this word, because there is no dawn for them. There is no light ahead. They are condemned. And... Verse 22, talking about this condemned group of people. Verse 21, they shall walk around uh, in in darkness, cursing their God, and looking upward, and they shall look upon the earth, the land, and behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven into darkness. This is very much the language of condemnation, of the condemned being driven away from the judgment seat, that's quite a theme in Bible teaching about judgment and condemnation, and into the outer darkness. So clearly, being in the darkness here means that you have been judged and condemned and sent out. Now to those people who have been condemned, there arises light, to quote again from a psalm that is relevant to this, there arises light even in the darkness. Now I'm not talking about a second chance, so you can come on the day of judgment, get condemned, and you you get another, another crack. No. What this is saying, as I understand it, is that In this life, you can sin, you get to a point where you are condemned, but there is the light of Christ. Now, in essence, whenever God and man uh, meet, there is judgment. And you can be condemned for your behavior right now. The judgment is not only to come. The essence of judgment is now. We make the answer now. And you can receive condemnation for your life, for your sins, etc., in this life classic example is Peter, when he denies the Lord, he goes out with bitter crying, and we might add gnashing of teeth, uh, but with bitter crying into outer darkness, away from the presence of the Lord. This is exactly the language of condemnation, but he repented and he will be saved and be in God's kingdom. So, you see what I'm saying? If you see the seriousness of your sin, you will realize that I should be condemned. And I am condemned for my sin. But now, we can change the verdict. The people who have been driven out into darkness and condemned, and were rolling their eyes upwards in the horror of condemnation, they, for them, the light of Jesus arose in the darkness. There arose light in the darkness, as the psalm says. And so <clears throat> this is where you get the real fire for Jesus. This is where you get really motivated by realizing the extent of your sin and realizing that you are condemned. Can you imagine coming the day of judgment being condemned? And you're like, "Oh, please, 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 please." And Jesus says, "Okay, yeah, I'll give you another go." Well, that's not going to happen, the last day, but it's happening now. Because every sin that we commit, we condemn for it. We're out into the darkness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But, even now, there arises light in the darkness. And this is what was going on here. And so the Lord moved from Nazareth to Capernaum in order to get better access, as I see it, to that audience. Now, just see that uh, <clears throat> that may possibly speak to you. It may be that you need to relocate. Not only for the work of the Gospel, uh, but for spiritual reasons. And you see, so many people uh, put their career, wealth, income, etc., uh, education even, above spiritual things, and they geographically relocate into isolation, and it doesn't do them any good at all, and often they lose the plot. We've simply seen it, too often. Uh, and so, in the eyes of the world, this may be foolish... That you're staying around the church, that you are <clears throat> moving somewhere, proactively moving somewhere, taking a career break, doing something that is not going to be uh, for the best for, for you in, in secular life, but you're doing it for spiritual reasons. It may not be your calling that you have to make that, so that choice, but it may be, and it was for the Lord as I, I see it. <coughs> So then, for those people in darkness, Matthew four sixteen, the the light is sprung up. And it's the same word in Matthew five forty five, in the Sermon on the Mount, next chapter, where we read that God makes His light, His Son, His light. And who is His Son, who is His light? The light of the world is the Lord Jesus. He makes His light to spring up, same word, to the just and to the unjust. So I think that... Uh, this usage of springing up here, there's a light springing up uh, in verse 16, uh, Matthew four paves the way for how we are to interpret Matthew 545 And I think it also helps us understand the Sower parable, that when the sun was sprung up, same word, some of the uh, seed that in, had initially responded then withered away. And I think the whole point of the Sower Parable, and we'll come to that later, looking at chapter 13, uh, is that all those types of ground responded initially. Israel responded initially to John the Baptist, but when the sun was up, when Jesus' ministry actually came, the ministry that John had predicted, then persecution arose, and then many of those people who had initially responded to John's message withered away, and I think that's the message of the, the initial message of the parable of the sower, but we'll get there later. So he says, verse 17, from that time onwards, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is exactly, Matthew 3, verse 2, exactly the message of John. He wants to show uh, word for word the continuity between John's ministry and his own. The idea is that if people had repented and had really accepted John's ministry, then the way, the road to Zion would have been prepared, and the glory of Yahweh would have come to Jerusalem. And it seems to me that Israel did have the possibility of accepting Jesus as Messiah. You may say, what about the cross? Um, This is the whole difficulty in trying to uh, understand God's plan, the God who knows all possible futures. Uh, It seems to me that there were various possibilities that Israel could, of course, have accepted, Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, they didn't need to crucify their king. This was obviously not God's will that they should do this. God and his wisdom foresaw what was going to happen. Uh, and yet there was the real possibility of repentance uh, leading to the establishment of God's kingdom there and then, if they had accepted uh, Messiah. <clears throat> now, repent. Literally the word means to rethink In French it's very clear, or Latin. uh, Re, again, pente, to think. Pense in, in French. So, to rethink. Repentance is ultimately in the mind. It is a rethinking. It is a thinking again. It is, as we all know from experience, doing something or being something and then stop. You rethink that and you recognize that that is wrong. So then it starts within the mind, and very often uh, we're told that someone's not repentant because we haven't seen action. Well, it's not for us to judge actions. Uh, we are to accept if somebody says, I have rethought, I have repented um, <clears throat> of a, a position or, or, or whatever. Typically you see this in, in cases of marital breakdown, and a second or third or whatever relationship has been formed, and sometimes the demand is made that they must quit that relationship. Well, repentance is a rethinking. Just bear that in mind. Repentance is a rethinking, and it is not for us really to judge the, uh, so to say, but the, the affairs of the uh, of the human heart. It is not for us to think we can look inside the mind of another and to see if they have rethought or not. If they say they have, then I see. We can do nothing else as people who cannot judge, in the sense of condemning. uh, I see no option but to to accept that. So repent, because the kingdom of heaven, the AV says, is at hand. But the idea really is, it's drawing near, or it is being drawn near. So if Israel had repented, then the coming of the kingdom would have been drawn near. As I said earlier, I don't think God necessarily works to calendar dates. It all depends, you know, when the gospel goes into all the world, then shall the end come. And in a number of the parables, when the fruit, which is clearly spiritual fruit, when the fruit is ready, then the harvesters are sent out. Then the Son of Man comes. So then, <clears throat> repentance would hasten the coming. Again, to use Peter's words, 2 Peter 3, uh, of, the, of the Day of God. And so, who is the uh, the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Well, in one sense, it is the kingdom that shall be literally established on earth. But in another sense, the kingdom is the king of the kingdom, Jesus. Remember in Luke 17, uh, 21, he talks about himself as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a title for the Lord Jesus. In Judaism, the kingdom of God was a title for Messiah. When he says, don't look here, don't look there, the kingdom of God is among you. It doesn't mean it's in your heart, as some people like to read it. The kingdom of God, that's Jesus, is among you. Look, Messiah is right amongst you. I'm talking to you guys. You look in here, you're running there. I'm here. I'm right here in the midst of you. And so, when he says that, that repentance will uh, make the kingdom of, of heaven, the kingdom of God, to approach... I think that this is talking about a hastening of his coming by repentance. And I have said earlier that it seems to me that there must be some repentance in Israel amongst the Jewish population to predicate, to to bring on the coming of Jesus. But I think it is also so that amongst the last generation of spiritual Israel, of God's people, there must likewise be that repentance And yet instead of getting on with that, it seems that the community of believers are endlessly chasing their tails over the the finer interpretation of Bible verses, arguments with each other, separation from this one, can't work with that one, and so on and so forth, when actually the essence is personal repentance, communal repentance, and getting the gospel out into all the world. And this will... Make the kingdom to approach, and as I say, at hand is uh, is a poor uh, is a poor translation, really. So Jesus, walking by, and the Greek really means walking around, it's like he's walking, going on a hike all around the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, throwing a net into the sea, and he says to them, "Follow me." Right at the most inconvenient point, point. and so often is that not the case? It's a bit like your cell phone, right? Your cell phone always rings at the most inconvenient time. And so the call of Christ comes to us often at the most inconvenient time. At the worst possible time, you're in the middle of giving a talk, and ring, ring, your cell phone goes. When that happens to me, I'm sure it happens to you, I I, I try to remind myself of, of the Lord's call of men. Just as the as the net was right, you know, in mid-air. That's the impression that the, the, the passage is giving. And then, hey you, no, no, I'm just throwing a net into the sea. Now, hey you, right now, you come follow me. As if they were to let the net drop. Let all that stuff go and follow me. Now he calls these people, verse 19, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you. You could say that one intention of our calling to the gospel is to bring others to the kingdom. Now, that does not mean that evangelism is the be-all and end-all. I would accept that some people are more cut out for it than others. Uh, But it is also so, I do believe, that we are each to be a light in this world, and a light gives light to someone. And, although there are denominations, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, where evangelism becomes the be-all and end-all, that is basically all you're supposed to achieve, basically, um, they've got the balance totally wrong. But bear in mind that one element, one element, not the only element, but one element in God's whole intention of calling you and me is to make us fishers of men so that we can bring others to God's kingdom. And so in trying to make sense of your life and how the Lord is working in it, be aware that actually he is... Working like that to use you uh, to bring others to him. Now, looking at the Greek word translated "fishers," it's uh, actually a form of the of the Greek Greek word house, which is translated "salt." And uh, the Greek word for fishes is uh, "halios," literally a salty one. You, salty ones, you are to be the salty ones of men. And again, you have the stage set for the Sermon on the Mount. Just a few verses later, Matthew 5, 13, we're going to meet the same word, you are the salt of the earth. And so, in a sense, the salvation of others depends upon us. That we are the salt of the earth, and we are the ones who bring them out of the sea of nations, into the boat, and to the day of judgment when the good are are accepted uh, and the the bad fish are just cast back into the sea. Go back into the world. That's the that's going to be the the condemnation. Share in Babylon's judgment. You want it to be in Babylon, so be in Babylon, uh, etc. So then to some extent, in in this metaphor that's being developed here, the salvation of others, the getting of them out of the sea uh, to Jesus, depends upon us now you may say yeah well if I, if I don't do my bit maybe you know God will raise up someone else if I don't talk to that fellow on the bus if I don't talk to that guy who I sat next to on the airplane well God will God will sort somebody else out of some other method he might look on the internet and he might find the gospel that way yeah maybe uh, but it does seem to me that God has delegated to each of us talents he's given to each of us certain responsibility. And if we don't do it, it doesn't get done. And the Lord's work will not progress unless we do it. That's not to glorify works, because we're saved by grace, not by how much work you do. But on the other hand, if you have really believed, well, you can be passive to that. And how do you respond? Well, we have the whole Bible to show us how practically and concretely uh, to respond. And so it, it, it seems to me that People are brought to the net, into God's kingdom, into the sphere of, of the Lord Jesus, by us. And the harvest can spoil. That's why the Lord was so concerned about lack of laborers in the harvest. So, uh, verse 20, they immediately left their nets. And this immediacy of, of response is quite a theme, it's especially in Mark, um, But but it's all through the the New Testament and you get it particularly in the Acts of the Apostles of people being baptised immediately and I think the record is framed to bring out the immediacy of response. always love uh, Rebecca when uh, Abraham's servant comes to uh, her father and and says, you know, I'd like to take this girl to uh, marry Isaac. Uh, Her father says to her and her family say to her, well, why don't you stay? Think about it. It's just what I'd say, if it was my daughter. Uh, yeah, okay, but just just don't go immediately. Just why don't you just have ten days to think about it? It's absolute typical, understandable parental response, absolutely right, humanly speaking. And she says, I will go. I'll go right now. And there is this sense, I think, that when you see God's direction, that He wants you to do something, go right now. Because the flesh loves that to delay. Ah, yet yeah, be careful. Think about it. Just wait a bit, a, bit, a bit. No, there should be an immediacy of response. Yes, an emotional response. Absolutely right. Because we know that whatever really we feel impelled to do for the Lord, in that sense, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. So then they left their nets, and then in verse 22, they leave even their boat and their father. It's funny that uh, that Greek word translated to leave, they left their nets, their boat, their dad, it's the same word translated to forgive. The idea is to just let it go. To let it go. That's forgiveness. Let it go. Really let it go. And so, what's our response to God's forgiveness of us? It's to let go secular life. I don't mean to live irresponsibly, but to let go all the things that would bind us to a life that's uncommitted to him. Now, verse 21, there were some other fishermen, James uh, and John, and they were mending their nets. And they do the same. They immediately leave and follow him. They were mending their nets. So although these people uh, clearly had, had had contact with John the Baptist, uh, and uh, you know Jesus didn't just walk up and say, "Hey, you follow me," they obviously had some level of knowledge of Jesus to do this. The point is, they weren't planning on doing it there and then, because they were mending their nets. They were intending to go on fishing. It's not. There's no theatricism here. But the record is just made to look as if they immediately left. No, they intended to go on fishing. That's why they're mending their nets. The call of Jesus that comes to us is in essence no different to the call that these men had in the Galilee of the first century. The Jesus who walked around the Galilee of the first century calling men and women. Uh, These men and women who left all and followed him. Uh, These are not simply historical characters. These are there so that you and I... uh, can see in them a pattern for ourselves. Because we, as large groups as we are here in Riga, or or small groups as maybe you are, or ones and twos as maybe you are uh, watching this presentation, we are all, no less, called to follow him. Now, in their mind, there would have been all kinds of excuses. But, they realised there was something in him I must follow. I must leave all this behind. So then, that call comes to us, whether you're in an accountant's office, whether you're in a classroom, whether you're working in a shop, whether you're a mother, whether you're a stay-at-home dad, whoever. That call comes to you, and it comes time and again, in the midst of everyday life. And they rose up and followed him and his program with them. He had a program with them. It wasn't that you just do it for the moment. He had a program. And it was to make them, to make them fishers of men. And that is ultimately one of the major purposes that God has with you. So don't be surprised if the Lord brings people into your life to whom you are intended to witness. Don't be surprised if you may have to be relocated somewhere. Which is not maybe what you ideally want and you think, why was this? Don't be surprised if these things happen, because there is a program that he's working to. From now on, once you're in Christ, there is significance to all events. Nothing now is chance. Nothing is bad luck, good luck, whatever. No. There is meaning attached to event. Now, we may not perceive that meaning, or we may misinterpret it, but there is meaning attached to that event because he wants to make you someone for him. Thank you.